0: Located between Berlin to the northeast and Nuremberg to the south, Weimar, Germany has been around for a while. In fact, archaeologists have found items indicating the area in and around Weimar has been inhabited by humans for thousands of years. Over those years, and admittedly mostly in the modern history of the city, there's been a lot of famous people who have made Weimar their home. Names such as the monk Martin Luther, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, A whole slew of composers, Richard Wagner, Franz Liszt, Johann Sebastian Bach, even Carl Zeiss, the founder and namesake of the company famous today for amazing camera lenses and more. Our story today comes from someone else who called Weimar home. His name was Lothar Gunther Buchheim and he was born into a family of artists on February 6th, 1918. Well, maybe artist, not artists. His mother was an artist, but she was also a single parent. When he was in his early 20s, Buchheim volunteered for the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy. That was in 1940. While in the Kriegsmarine, Buchheim put his writing skills to work in the role of a Sonderfuhrer. Basically, he was a part of the propaganda team within the Kriegsmarine and reported on the goings-on for papers back home. It was in this role when Buchheim was assigned to a German submarine called U-96. Although he certainly provided reports back to his superiors in Germany, it took decades for Lothar Gunther to publish anything publicly on his war experiences. For the most part, after the war, he spent those decades focusing on art. But then, in 1973, Buchheim wrote a book on his experiences in the war that he simply called Das Boot, The Boat. It took less than a decade for that book to get turned into the major feature film that we're going to look at today. The movie Das Boot was adapted for the screen by Wolfgang Petersen, the same man who directed the film, and was released in 1981. Although being nominated for six Oscars, it failed to secure one. Despite this, it's gone on to become a classic film showing what life was like on board a German submarine during World War II. What are the things it's showing true to history? I'm Dan LeFebvre and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode, then by a process of elimination. You'll know which one is a lie. And, of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, U-96 sank in 1941 like the movie shows. Number two, Captain Heinrich Lehmann Willenbrook did not die in 1941 like the movie shows. Number three, U-96 did not depart for her seventh patrol from La Rochelle, France like the movie shows. Before we continue, I wanted to say thank you to Frank for becoming an official producer of the show and recommending that we cover Das Boot. Frank's actually a podcaster too, so if you're into indie car racing, you might like his show called The Indy Sports Car Podcast, or his other show that he was kind enough to have me on a little while back called Way Off Topic Radio. Frank mentioned Das Boot was a movie that had some sentimental value to him because it was his grandfather's favorite film. So, thanks again, Frank, and let's dedicate this episode to him. Oh, and one last thing before we get started. I wanted to point out which version I'm going to be using for this episode, because there's multiple versions of Das Boot. So, for this one, I'm going to be using the Director's Cut. That's important because it is not the 5-plus-hour-long-uncut edition, so there's bound to be some stuff in the longer one that I won't even mention here. The director's cut still has three and a half hours worth of movie, so we have a lot to cover. So with that, let's get to our comparison of history with the movie Das Boot. The movie opens with a few facts that we can compare against history right away. The year is 1941 and we're in La Rochelle, France. According to the movie, During World War II, the German Navy ramped up their U-boat production significantly and there were 40,000 German soldiers who served in the U-boats during World War II, and 30,000 of them never returned. While those numbers are obviously rounded, they're pretty accurate, but they're only a part of the picture of the German Navy's U-boat campaign during World War II. To get a better sense of what happened, we have to go back to World War I. For years during the First Great War, the German Navy wreaked havoc on Allied boats using their U boats, a shortened term for Unterseeboot or undersea boat. By the time World War I came to an end in 1918, Germany had about 350 U boats that had sunk thousands of Allied ships. As a part of the Treaty of Versailles at the end of the war, there were restrictions put on the German military. In addition to having caps on the size of their military, Germany was required to either turn over or actively decommission a lot of their armaments. After Hitler came to power in Germany, he secretly began building up their military in direct disobedience to the Treaty of Versailles. But for the purposes of our story today, by the time World War II broke out, the German Navy only had 56 U-boats. Of those 56, only 24 of them were ready for operations in the open ocean. But, of course, after the war broke out, the Treaty of Versailles was thrown out the window and over the course of World War II there were 1,156 U-boats built by the German military machine. Manning those submarines over the course of the war were about 40,900 men. So the movie is pretty accurate there with a bit of rounding. Of those 1,156 subs, 784 of them were lost throughout the course of the war. That's about 70% of the entire fleet, along with about 28,000 lives. So again, the movie is pretty accurate, with a bit of rounding. What the movie doesn't mention, though, is that about 5,000 of the U-boat personnel were captured as prisoners of war, and 221 of the subs were scuttled. By their own crews to avoid enemy capture. By the end of the war, the German navy that had 56 U-boats to begin the war and had risen to over a thousand subs at the height of the war surrendered 156 U-boats at the end of the war. I don't know what the deal is with the number 56 showing up in all those stats, but thanks to the fall of the Third Reich, I'm sure there's. St- Still going to be some wiggle room in the specifics there, but those are the stats from the official historical society of the Australian Navy. Oh, and we know of at least two U-boats that escaped capture by fleeing to Argentina. Going back to the movie, after this setting of the German Navy's history of sorts, we're introduced to some officers in the German Navy as they're driving down a countryside road. Along the way, they meet up with some very drunk sailors who promptly initiate the men in the car by urinating on the vehicle as it passes by. After this, there's a party of sorts where we find out one of the officers in the car is the captain. While this particular scene was highly dramatized for the film, Captain Heinrich Liman Willenbrock was a real person. He's portrayed by Jürgen Prochnow in the film. Although, while Jürgen was almost 40 years old when he was portraying Heinrich in Das Boot, the real Heinrich was only 30 years old when 1941 came around. Coincidentally, 1941 was also the same year Jürgen was born. Although it is worth pointing out that Jürgen was supposed to be playing a 30-year-old Heinrich. It's not like the movie was trying to pretend like he was 40. The movie is accurate here, even if the ages between the actor and the character that they're playing were different. But while the real Heinrich was younger than he seemed to be on the screen at this point, that's not to say he didn't have plenty of experience. A decade of experience, actually. Heinrich joined the Navy in 1931, then of the Weimar Republic. Between that time and 1941, Heinrich rose through the ranks and held the position of captain for two U-boats, the U-8 and then the U-5. Oh, and as a little side note, there's a moment in the movie at the bar where Otto Sanders' version of Philip Thompson drunkenly mentions they're fighting for the apprentice painter-turned-military genius. Well, there's no records I could find of a real Philip Thompson. The closest I could find was a Rolf Thompson who commanded U-1202 from January of 1944 to May of 1945. The points that the movie version of Thompson makes were true. Before his rise to power in Germany, Adolf Hitler was an aspiring artist who lived in Vienna, Austria from 1908 to 1913, selling paintings and postcards. Obviously, we know now that Hitler abandoned his artistic career. According to the author and historian Bridget Hamann in her book, Hitler's Vienna, a portrait of the tyrant as a young man, Hitler's most loyal patron of his paintings was a man named Samuel Morgenstern. Samuel was a glazer or someone who fits glass into windows and doors. But Samuel ended up letting Hitler sell his paintings in Samuel's store. In fact, it's only thanks to Samuel's diligent record-taking of who purchased Hitler's paintings that we've been able to track many of them down over time. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks Earnin. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Well, in Hitler's own words in Mein Kampf would state that his anti-Semitism began during his days in Vienna, his friendly working relationship with Samuel would suggest otherwise because in addition to being one of Hitler's most loyal buyers and a business partner, Samuel was also Jewish. But that's a story for another day. Going back to the movie, after the scene at the bar, we find Jürgen Prochnow's version of Captain Heinrich Lehmann Willenbruck heading to the docks where there are U-boats under construction. Then he sees it. U-96. As you can probably guess, U-96 was indeed a real U-boat. Now Maybe it's just me, but the implication in the movie seems to be that when Captain Lehmann Willenbrock takes command, U-96 is a new boat. And we also found out with the text at the beginning of the movie that the date is 1941. That would mean that the movie's timeline is a bit off because the real U96 launched for her first patrol in December, more specifically December 1st, 1940. In fact, this patrol was the seventh patrol for U96 and was one that she embarked on after six weeks in the shipyards, doing the typical repairs after months at sea from her last patrol. But we can get a sense of the timeline in the film based on another character the movie mentions here. That's the war correspondent Lieutenant Werner, who Captain Lehmann Willenbrock introduces to the rest of the crew, saying that he'll be a guest on the boat. The character of Lieutenant Werner is based on the man who wrote the book that the film is based on, also called Das Boot. That'd be the man we learned about in the intro, Lothar Gunter Buchheim. Just like the fictional Werner in the film, the real Lothar Gunter Buchheim was on board the U 96 as a war correspondent. He was, as the movie shows Werner doing, there to document the patrol for the propaganda office back in Berlin. You'll notice I said patrol, singular. That's because Lothar Gunter Buchheim was only on board U 96 for one patrol. That might seem to be right in line with the film, since there's only one patrol shown in the film. And to some degree, it is. It was in 1941, like the movie shows, October 27th, 1941 to be precise, and Buchheim was assigned to U-96 on the same day they were set to leave for their seventh patrol. By the way, I, I know I mentioned earlier that the movie seemed to imply... At least to me, that this was the first patrol for U96. But I want to be clear, there's really no mention of that in the movie. That's just my interpretation with the way that the characters react to seeing U96 in the dock. The movie doesn't really mention how many patrols U96 has been a part of before the events in the film. So that's why I kind of got that implication. Again, that may just be my interpretation. As a quick little recap of what we've learned from history so far though, Buchheim, who would go on to write the book that the movie Das Boot was based on many decades later, was on board for the seventh patrol of U 96. That patrol took place between October 27th and December 6th, 1941. Oh, and while the movie mentions La Rochelle, France, the truth is that U 96 left for her seventh patrol from Saint Nazaire, France. That's about 120 miles or 190 kilometers to the north of La Rochelle. It's worth mentioning that in his book, Buchheim mentions U96 leaving from Lorient, France. While it's true that Lorient had submarine pens used by the Nazis during World War II, the filmmakers changed this to La Rochelle. They did that actually because the submarine pens that we see in the film are actually in La Rochelle, and those pens have survived a lot better than those in Lorient. Basically, it was changed from Lorient to La Rochelle because they looked a lot better on screen. I'll make sure to include a photo of those pens that they used for the movie over on the base on a True Story Instagram feed. As a little side note, while U96's 7th patrol departed from St. Nazaire, she left from Lorient for her second and third patrols back on January 9th and then January 30th, 1941, respectively. Oh, and her first patrol was out of Kiel along the northern coast of Germany. Back in the movie, once the submarine leaves port, we get introduced to more of the crew. While many of these characters are fictionalized, many of them are also based on real people. Even some of the characters without names were real people. For example, in the movie, there's a character simply cast as the first watch officer. He's not even given a name in the movie. He's just first-watch officer. But if you remember the clean-cut Nazi who hailed from Mexico City and traveled back to Germany because he believed it was his duty to fight for his country, that's the first-watch officer. He's played by Herbertus Banks in the film, and he was based on a man named Gerhard Goethe, who was the first-watch officer on the real U-96. Or there's the actor Klaus Venemann's portrayal of the chief engineer. He's usually referred to just as Chief, and there's actually some conflicting reports among historians about him. As far as we can tell, there was a real person named Fritz Grade, who was the chief engineer on U-96, like the movie indicates. But others suggest that the character of Fritz Grade was based on a man named Hans Peter Dangle. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of documentation on either of them to really help clarify things a little bit better. A few of the other characters were the second watch officer, like the first watch officer, there's really no name given, but he's played by Martin Zamoroga and his character was based on the real person in that same role. That'd be Werner Hermann, who served as, as you can probably guess, the second watch officer on U-96. Continuing on, there's a character named Chief Helmsman, again just naming the characters after their position. He's played by Bernd Tauba in the movie and is based on the navigator of U96, the real man named Alfred Rademacher. Or there's the character of Ullmann. He's portrayed in the movie by Martine May. You probably would remember him from the movie as the guy who had the pregnant girlfriend named Francois. The real person's name was Hans Heinrich Haas, and while I looked, I couldn't find any sort of proof that he actually had a pregnant girlfriend like the movie indicates. Finally, of the main characters in the film, we have the character of Johann, or the Ghost, as the other crew members call him in the movie. The real person Johan is based on was Hans Johansen. Of course, that's not all of the crew members. In all, there were 42 men assigned to the real U-96 on her patrols. Granted, sometimes that number fluctuated. For example, as we learned when Lothar Gunther Buchheim joined for the 7th Patrol, Other than the ones we've talked about, most of the others we see in the movie, though, were, as far as my research indicates, either fictional or played enough of a background role to have their real names hidden in history. One of my personal speculations as to why we don't know some of the names is simply because many of the characters were created by Buchheim in his book that the movie is based on. Remember, that book is a novel, so some things have been fictionalized. Like, as we learned, the names changing. Another thing to keep in mind is what we learned that while there were cramped quarters on the sub, it's very likely that he didn't really connect with a lot of the men on board for the one and only patrol that he joined them on. So perhaps when he wrote the book, which didn't get published until 1973, he'd forgotten some of the names. And sure, he took notes and had all that to refer back to, but if he didn't take the note, If he's anything like me, you'll forget, many decades later, some of the names, and so you'd have to make some of those up. Anyway, again, that's just my personal speculation there. Going back to the movie, soon after setting out, the captain decides to run a test. There's a few moments of tension as we see U-96 dive underwater and go down, down, deeper, 150 meters, 160 meters. They have to know that the submarine will be able to survive pushing the limits. Now, and 150 meters, by the way, is uh, 490 feet, and 160 meters is about 525 feet. Soon after this, Jürgen Prochnow's version of Captain Lehman Willebruck orders them to surface. The test was a success. Well, this particular scene is one of those that's nearly impossible to verify. It's very plausible. Leaving Saint-Nazaire, it took a couple of days to cross the Bay of Biscay, which is that body of water to the west of France and just north of Spain. So it's possible, and it would make sense knowing that she'd just spent the past six weeks in the shipyards, that the crew would want to run some tests in the calm waters before facing combat situations. When you're in the middle of combat, that's not when you want to find out that the repairs weren't done very well. As a Type 7C submarine, U-96 was rated with a maximum operating depth at about 230 meters or about 750 feet, but with a crutch depth of somewhere between 250 and 295 meters or about 820 to 968 feet. It's not like they operated that far down, it was just supposed to be able to go that deep and still work, not get crushed. For some comparison here, the average depth in the ocean is almost 3,700 meters, or about 12,100 feet, while the deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench, and at its deepest point is around 11,034 meters, or about 36,200 feet. So while 250 meters is plenty deep, there's still a lot of water beneath them. And of course, again, it's not like they operate at 250 meters. Like the movie shows, the average depth for U-96 was much more on the shallow end. Something else the movie shows throughout is a lot of waiting around. There's a lot of shots of the sailors chatting around the captain's table or with Werner in the bunks. While the movie never shows where they're at during these sort of shots, I think it's helpful to know not only how deep U-96 could go, but how far she could go as well. U-96 had a range of about 15,700 kilometers or about 9,800 miles. For a bit of context here on that range, from the port she left in Saint-Nazaire, France to New York City in the United States, that's about 5,600 kilometers or about 3,475 miles. Of course, they weren't headed to New York City, but you get the point. They had quite a range as they operated in the Atlantic Ocean. But what plays more into so much time in the film being dedicated to conversations around the captain's table probably has to do with the speed of U 96. On the surface, she could only go about 10 knots. That's 19 kilometers per hour, or about 12 miles per hour. Underwater, she could only go about 4 knots, or about 7.4 kilometers per hour, and about 4.6 miles per hour. That would mean if she did make the trip from St. Nazaire, France to New York City at full speed on the surface the entire way, it would take 291 hours or about 12 full days, 24-7, going around the clock. So again, those numbers are just for some context, but it would make sense that there's a lot of waiting around time. If I might add a little personal anecdote to the story. Years ago, I used to work as a defense contractor for the United States Air Force. During that time, I had the chance to chat with a pilot of a B-2 bomber planes that had been used to fly 30-plus hours from their base at Whitman Air Force Base in Missouri all the way to the Middle East without stopping to drop a payload of bombs and then head right back. My point in mentioning this is that I asked the pilot what it was like being a bomber pilot. It was the only question I could think of to ask as we stood there waiting for others to join the group that we were part of. I'm paraphrasing his reply, of course, but it was something to the effect of long periods of boredom followed by a few insane moments of action with more boredom afterward. While I've never been a bomber pilot or part of a submarine's crew, as I was watching Das Boot and all of these moments of the crew chatting, I couldn't help but think of that pilot's response and the similarities that must be true. Back in the movie, there's a brief moment where we see a message come in from another U-boat, U-37, and Jürgen Prochnow's version of Captain Heinrich Lehmann Willenbrock mentions that's Martin's boat. Ultimately, they decide they're too far away to take part in a battle against the convoy spotted by U-37, but it's also worth pointing out that this was all made up. You see, well, U-37 was indeed a real U-boat, I mean, they're numbered sequentially, so if there's a U-96, of course there's would have been a U-37. If you recall, U-96 left for her 7th patrol on October 27th, 1941, and because the movie doesn't really show how much time is passing, it's a little tough to know exactly who the captain of U-37 was. But what we do know is that it wasn't anyone named Martine. That's because on November 15th, 1941, U-37 was commanded by Captain Ulrich Falka's that was his last day after six months and twelve days as commander of the boat. Then, on November sixteenth, Gustav Adolf Janssen took over. His command of U thirty-seven lasted until June thirtieth, nineteen forty-two. In fact, throughout U 37s eleven patrols and eleven different commanders during World War Two, none of them had the name Martin. Then again. Even the names of the crew on U96 were changed for the film, so maybe other names were changed as well. Oh, and as a fun little fact here, the movie also incorrectly shows the Germans using a four-rotor Enigma machine. Those didn't come out until early 1942, which is after the timeline in the movie. They only had three rotors in late 1941 when the story in the film is set. In the movie, while taking photos of the crew, there's a moment where Herbert Guindemeyer's version of Lieutenant Werner gets an oily rag thrown in his face. No one owns up to doing it, but despite this, it's still something that the author behind the book, Lothar Gunther Buchheim, took the time to criticize about the film. As he explained after the movie was released, because Lieutenant Werner was an officer, he would have commanded a certain level of respect from the sailors. Even though, in the movie, the crew is given a verbal lashing, Lothar Gunther insisted that the rag incident would never have been allowed to happen. Oh, and as a fun fact, remember that scene soon after the rag incident where we see some of the officers around the captain's table eating a bunch of lemons? That's something the submarine crews actually did. Not just submarine crews, actually, but sailors of all sorts. In 1753, a surgeon in the British Royal Navy named James Lynn became the first to prove that citrus fruits could combat the disease known as scurvy. If you're not familiar with scurvy, it's essentially a disease that comes from a lack of vitamin C in your diet. So it's not really that common today, but it was common among sailors who were on a very strict diet of foods on board the ship, often meaning they didn't get enough vitamin C. It took a few decades, but soon citrus became a common thing to carry on ships. So by the time World War II rolled around, a lot of ships cast off loaded with plenty of lemons and limes and things like that to help the crews combat scurvy. In fact, if you've ever heard the nickname Limey, that's something coming from the British Royal Navy's Merchant Shipping Act of 1867, which required all ships in the Royal Navy to provide a daily lime ration for soldiers. So there's really no way to prove that exact scene happened in the movie, but it wouldn't have been a surprise to find submariners chowing down on lemons or limes. After the scene with the Lemons, there's another message. According to the movie, it's from U-32, who's discovered another convoy. This one with over 30 freighters and it's within range. U-96 decides to join the hunt. While the pack mentality was something that the U-boats definitely did during World War II, I'm inclined to think that this particular scene was less than true. You see, U-32 was commissioned on April 15, 1937, And then, on April thirtieth, 1940, it was sunk by the British destroyers HMS Harvester and HMS Highlander, just northwest of Ireland. So there's no way U-32 could have sent a message to U-96 in 1941 when the movie happens. But it is true that U-96 ran across a convoy, but we'll learn about that here in a little bit. Back in the movie, there's a couple scenes after this where we see U-96 run into, as the movie says, Thompson's boat. If you remember, he was the drunken sailor at the beginning of the movie talking about Adolf Hitler, the painter-turned-military strategist. Oh, and if you remember, there wasn't anyone named Philip Thompson, who was a U-boat commander during World War II that we know of, but that doesn't mean that this meetup didn't happen. In fact, it did. I couldn't find an exact date, but most historians suggest it was sometime during November of 1941 when U-96 met up with U-572 during a storm. So if Philip Thompson wasn't the commander of U-572, who was? That would be a man named Heinz Hirsaka. Sadly, Heinz would go on to commit suicide just days after being court-martialed and sentenced to death by a firing squad for falsifying his ship's log. Instead of patrolling regions, officers on his ship reported that they spent most of their patrol in late 1942 submerged and essentially hiding for the entire time. We don't have a lot of information about him or his court-martialing, but it seemed that this was enough reason for him to be sentenced to death. Instead, he asked for a pistol, which was granted. He died on April 24, 1943. Three months and ten days later, Heinz Hirsak's former crew aboard U-572 met their own fate when the ship, now under a new commander named Heinz Kumatat, was sunk by depth charges at a position near South America, northeast of Guyana. Oh, and as a little fun movie trivia fact for you, during this meeting between U-572 and U-96... There's a moment when Lt. Werner and another German officer there report the sighting of the U-boat as being off the port bow, but they're looking and pointing to the starboard side of the ship. Whoops. (laughs) Back to the movie's timeline. After this uh, U-96 comes across a convoy of allied ships, they're on the surface in calm waters indicating that some time has passed since the previous storm when U-96 and U-572 met up. Of course, The movie doesn't say how much time has passed, but it's here that the movie shows U-96 firing her torpedoes from tubes 1 to 4. Then, all of a sudden, there's a destroyer. Dive! Dive! U-96 slips beneath the ocean amid shots from the destroyer. After diving, they hear explosions. Two of the torpedoes hit. At least, that's what the characters in the movie say. Since we're watching everything from the perspective of U-96, who's too busy trying to dodge the destroyer's gunfire, they didn't really see it, and as viewers, neither do we. And here's where the movie seems to have altered the timeline a bit. Remember how it was in November when U-96 met with U-572? Well, it was on October 30th, 1941, just three days after leaving port, when U-96 received a message by radio from the BDU to join a pack of six U-boats patrolling the region just off the coast of the Canadian Newfoundland. By the way, BDU is short for haba de Ubuta. I can almost guarantee I butcher the pronunciation of that one, so no need to let me know. BDU was Germany's commander-in-chief over the U-boats. So after receiving their new orders, U-96 headed toward Newfoundland, but then, the next day, a convoy was spotted. Now, it's worth pointing out that in my research, I found some interesting details about exactly who spotted the convoy. According to the great biography of Heinrich Lehmann Willenbrock by the author Luke Breuer, it was a man named Eric Tropp, the commander of U-552, who spotted the convoy some 230 miles or 370 kilometers away from U-96. Other reports suggest that Captain Tropp's U-552 sank an American ship, the USS Reuben James, on October 31st, 1941. So maybe he had already opened fire on the convoy. Oh, and while the movie doesn't really mention this, U-552 was, at that time, a part of the Stostrup Wolf pack of U-Boats, the same pack as U-96 at the time. So they were hunting together. And I think that's really interesting because in the movie, it really seems like U-96 is hunting alone the entire time. Regardless of who spotted it, though, U-96 found out about the convoy and stopped heading toward Newfoundland after Captain Lehmann Willenbrook made the decision to attack the convoy. Staying a safe distance away so they couldn't be seen by the convoy, U-96 waited until nightfall so they could launch their surprise attack under the cover of darkness. Unfortunately, though, the weather wasn't quite right for a night attack without being spotted. By that, what I mean was that it was a clear night. The moon was out, uncovered by clouds, which meant it would be pretty easy to spot U-96 when she surfaced. But it wasn't quite clear enough to attack from periscope depth, as it would be tough to get the angle just right. So, Captain Lehmann Willenbrook decided to simply shoot into the center of the convoy. At this point, they were about 3,900 meters or about 2.42 miles away from the convoy, so it's not like it was a well-aimed shot. Well, shots. U-96 shot four torpedoes into the convoy. While the movie suggests that two torpedoes hit, historical records wouldn't seem to agree. But that doesn't mean that the movie is wrong. In fact, at the time The crew of U-96 thought that they had hit two ships because they heard two explosions, but there was only one ship who was hit. That was a Dutch freighter, a 5,998-ton ship called the Benecom. So one of the explosions that the crew heard was the torpedo hitting, then the ship's cargo caught fire and it's likely that the other sound that they heard was another explosion caused by the cargo. Just like the movie shows, though, the explosions alerted one of the ships in the convoy which started shooting at U 96. That was a British ship, HMS Lowworth, which forced U 96 underwater by shooting at her. After diving, the movie is correct in showing that HMS Lowworth didn't give up on its chase of U 96. And I found some conflicting reports about the number of depth charges dropped. Some documents said that there were 18, while others said 27. Still, The number is almost inconsequential for the purposes of our story because no matter how many there were, the movie's depiction of the scene underwater had to have been chaotic, tense, and terrifying. But U96 managed to survive. Oh, and during this barrage of depth charges, the movie shows more than one bolt go flying from the pipes around U96 as she dove deeper than 200 meters or about 650 feet to get under the explosions. That's actually another thing the author of the book, Lothar Gunther Buchheim, pointed out as something he didn't like about the movie. He made a point to call this particular part out, instead insisting that in the real world a single bolt loosening on the hull would be enough to worry the entire crew that the sub would get crushed. In his eyes, it seemed that really this was nothing more than movie sensationalism and cheap tricks to try to increase the tension. Of course, for that purpose, it worked, albeit while sacrificing accuracy. According to the movie, after escaping the depth charges, U-96 surfaces to find a burning ship. She's injured, but won't sink. Almost mercifully, U-96 fires a single torpedo to finish her off. Only then, Jürgen Prochnow's version of Captain Limon Willenbrock notices men on board. Engulfed in flames, the men are jumping into the ocean. This makes him upset. Why hadn't their own ships come to rescue them? They had six hours. On screen, we see the men in the water start swimming toward U-96, but the sub isn't prepared to take on prisoners. There's hardly enough room for the crew on board as it is, so U-96 departs, leaving behind a damaged ship which slowly slips beneath the surface of the water. That's partially true, but there were quite a bit of changes from what really happened. After diving to avoid the gunfire from HMS Loworth and hiding from the subsequent depth charges, U-96 stayed submerged until their hydrophone operator couldn't hear the sound of the ship's propellers on the surface anymore. As the early hours of November 1st ticked by, U-96 surfaced and then, as the movie shows, spotted a burning ship. It was much further than the movie shows, though, at about 4,000 meters or about 2.5 miles. Oh, and they weren't alone. While the movie makes a point to show the captain's displeasure of there not being a ship to pick up the survivors, in truth, U-96 saw both the burning ship and three other ships nearby picking up survivors out of the water. U-96 didn't fire a torpedo to finish off the ship, but instead they left the area to search for the rest of the convoy. Oh, and remember the Dutch ship that U-96 hit with their torpedo, the Well. We know from historical records that it had about 54 people on board when it sank. 46 of those were rescued. Heading back into the movie's timeline, after managing to survive the depth charges, the crew on U-96 gets a message from U-112, a U-boat under the command of, according to the movie, someone named Vencel. While well, there was a U-boat commander named Wenzel, his full name was Wolfgang Wenzel, he was the commander of U-231. So, who was the real commander of U-112 that the movie shows? Well, there wasn't one. As far as we know, U-112 was never commissioned. She was ordered on January seventeenth, 1939, but on September fifteenth of the same year, that order was suspended. There's actually some conspiracy theories that suggest U-112 was a part of a top-secret plot to head to the United States in 1945 for some unknown mission, but there's never been any proof of that. So far as we know, U-112 never existed. That begs the question, what really happened after leaving the scene of the burning ship? Well, as we learned, U-96 left to go try to find the convoy, but they had to be careful because... The convoy had guard ships who were now also aware that there were U-boats in the area. They found the convoy, but again were forced to dive after being fired on by gunships escorting the convoy. For about 11 minutes, the crew of U-96 were bombarded by 12 depth charges. Fortunately for the crew, they were dropped in the wrong place, though, and U-96 again waited for the sounds from the surface to be all clear. At 9.52 p.m., U-96 surfaced to find the gunship was about 6,000 meters or about 3.7 miles away. Silently, using their electric motors to avoid detection, U-96 left the area. For the next few days, U-96 searched for the convoy, but to no avail. Then on Tuesday, November 4th, they got another message from the BDU. This time they were ordered to join the Sturtebacke pack of U-boats. Together, they were to head toward the Spanish coast to try and intercept a convoy that German intelligence had discovered. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find out how many U-boats were a part of the Sturtebacke pack, which U-96 took part in from November 5th to November 19th, although it does seem that U-552, which we touched on a bit earlier, joined her in the pack. For days, and without any luck, U-96 and the Sturtabaca pack scoured the seas looking for a convoy that was supposed to be in the area. After this, back in the movie, it's time for U-96 to go home, except they can't go back to where they came from, La Rochelle, France. They get orders to go to Vigo, Spain, where they'll pick up fuel and supplies and then head into the Mediterranean to dock at La Spezia in Italy. While the movie doesn't help us much with the timeline, this was late November, which means the patrol had lasted almost a month to this point. We already learned U 96 didn't leave from La Rochelle, but to give some geographical context here, the port they really left from, Saint Nazaire, is about 470 miles or 756 kilometers away from Vigo. Vigo, in turn, is on the far western coast of Spain, just north of Portugal, if you're familiar with that area. It was here in Vigo, according to the movie, that U-96 meets up with a German ship for fuel and supplies. That's true. After failing to find the convoy with the Sturtebacke pack for a few days, the BDU sent another message ordering U-96 to rendezvous in the port at Vigo to get food and fuel from Basel, a German ship there. Captain Lehmann Willenbrock asked if he could have the war correspondent, Buchheim, disembark in Spain. He was refused. If you're like me, you're probably wondering, wait, why are the Germans meeting in Spain? I don't remember them being part of the Axis forces. Well, that's true. Technically, Spain was neutral during World War II, but many historians consider their neutrality to really be nothing more than that, a technicality. You see, just a few years earlier, Spain went through a civil war. Like most wars, it was one that saw a lot of people die, some 600,000 or so in this case from 1936 to 1939. Throughout the war, the Spanish nationalists received a lot of foreign aid, including from countries like Italy and Germany. So by the time World War II came about, those in power in Spain—in particular, the dictator of the country, General Francisco Franco—returned aid to access powers by doing things like letting them use Spanish ports and allowing German and Italian spies to gather intelligence on the Allies from his country, and so on. For the purpose of our story today, this means that the movie is correct when it mentions that Spain is a neutral country, but they're tolerating the Germans. On november twenty seventh, nineteen forty one, U ninety six met with a German ship named Bessel at the port in Vigo to get some much needed supplies. Although U ninety six arrived at Vigo Bay at around one twenty eight PM local time, she stays submerged until nightfall. At eight twenty eight PM she surfaced in the dark and quietly entered the bay. We know the meeting in Vigo happened from about 10 p.m. to about 4 a.m. on the night and early morning of November 27th and 28th. While officers of U-96 were invited on board the German ship as supplies like fuel, fruit, and bread were transferred, we don't have a lot of details of the specifics that happened while they were on the ship. Although it's worth pointing out that the captain, Heinrich Lehmann Willenbroeck, The real captain of U-96 was a consultant for the movie Das Boot, so it's very possible that he helped offer some guidance on scenes like this that we see in the movie, where we see the officers from U-96 interacting with the officers on the ship, Bessel. Scenes that really we just don't have a lot of documentation on what actually happened. According to the movie, after this meeting in Vigo, U-96 is headed to Italy by way of the Strait of Gibraltar. For some context, and geographical context that is, Vigo is about 460 miles or about 740 kilometers north of the Strait of Gibraltar. In the movie, after trying to get through the Strait of Gibraltar, U-96 is attacked by a plane and damaged pretty significantly. It sinks down to about 280 meters or about 918 feet before settling on some rock. The movie doesn't come out and actually say how long they stayed underwater here, but there is a moment when Herbert Goynemeier's version of Lieutenant Werner asks Jürgen Prochno's version of Captain Heinrich Lehmann Willenbrock if they, he thinks they'll survive. Then the captain replies by saying something like, it's been 15 hours, and something to the effect of, I don't think he'll be able to pull it off. The he mentioned, of course, is referring to Klaus Vindemann's portrayal of the chief engineer who was working to give U96 a second chance at life. And in the movie, he's able to pull it off. It's true that U96 was headed to the Strait of Gibraltar after the meeting in Vigo, and it's also true that the Strait of Gibraltar was controlled by the British. As a little side note, if you're not familiar with the geography here, the Strait of Gibraltar is south of Spain and north of Morocco on the African continent. So the natural question would be, if Spain was tolerant of the Germans, why was the strait itself under British control? Well, that's because one of the world's largest rocks, the Rock of Gibraltar, is just south of Spain. When World War II broke out, civilians on the rock were evacuated, and tens of thousands of British troops fortified the rock to help secure the Strait of Gibraltar. The rock itself wasn't particularly important, except that it was the perfect place to control who came in and went out of the Mediterranean Sea. And for that reason, the rock was very important. In fact, there was a point when the Spanish dictator, General Franco, wanted to conquer the rock, but he decided not to because he didn't think that he'd be able to withstand a British counterattack. Essentially, it probably would have drawn Spain into the war, so he decided to stay neutral. Well, as neutral as they were. But in the movie, as U-96 was passing through the strait, we see a British plane spot the submarine. It was a biplane torpedo bomber to be precise called a Swordfish. Well that's true. It's just part of the story. In fact, U96 was spotted multiple times. At 12:36 p.m. on November 29th, she crashed dive after being spotted by a plane. Then again, she was spotted at 3:48 p.m. on November 30th. She was spotted at 9:16 a.m., 10:30 a.m., 11:25 a.m. by two ships at one twelve pm and again by planes at 3.50pm and 4.05pm, followed by another spotting by a British ship at 4.11pm and another plane at 4.15pm. So yeah, U-96 was spotted quite a bit. While each of these sightings didn't really require a crash dive, some did. It seemed though that the movie simplified things a bit in just showing a single sighting. At 7.17 p.m. local time, U-96 surfaced and tried to stay as close as she could to the African coast of the strait, basically staying as far away from the British outpost on the Rock of Gibraltar as she could. At 10.35 p.m. on November 30th, the swordfish torpedo bomber that we saw in the movie spotted U-96 and attacked. Like the movie shows, the plane damaged U-96 and forced her to dive underwater to safety. Two bombs detonated near U 96 just as she slipped beneath the water. The force of the bombs caused the lights to go out on U 96, and it took a bit for the emergency lights to come on. So, for a brief period, the crew was cast into pitch black darkness. It had to have been terrifying. According to the movie, though, the plane's bombs did more damage than just knocking out the lights. We see U 96 start diving, and she just keeps going down 150 meters. 190, 220, bolts start popping. Something we already learned was fictionalized for the dramatic purposes of the film, but then after 220, it's 240 meters, 250. Finally, at 280 meters, they stop at the bottom. That's about 918 feet. Unfortunately, though, we don't know all of the details of exactly what happened down there. Some suggest most of these scenes... That we see with the ship at the bottom were heavily fictionized by Lothar Günter Buchheim for his book and by extension for the film. In his book, Hitler's U Boat War, historian Clay Blair suggested that things probably weren't quite as dramatic as the book or the movie makes it seem. According to Luke Breuer's biography of Heinrich Lehmann Willembrock, though, After diving and being cast into darkness at a depth somewhere between 65 to 100 feet or about 20 to 30 meters, U-96 was able to stabilize themselves after turning on their electric motors. Then, one by one, they assessed damages and began repairing them. While the movie certainly seems to have added to the drama from what really happened, that's not to say it was a calm affair. They did take damage. and It was war, after all. It was a submarine forced underwater after taking damage from an airplane. It was not knowing what the enemy was doing in the waters and sky above you. Meanwhile, the crew focused on repairing instruments like the compass and listening devices, while for others it was blocking oil and water leaks. Fearing that they would end up sinking if they stayed submerged, at about 11 o'clock p.m. or 25 minutes after diving, U-96 surfaced again so she could travel faster to get out of the area. Unfortunately, though, she had sprung an oil leak externally and was essentially leaving a trail in the water as she went. Fifteen minutes after surfacing, the torpedo bomber returned and forced U-96 to dive yet again. This time, and with more repairs to do, Captain Lehman Willenbrook decided to try to rest her on the seabed so they could focus on repairs. So, that part of the movie is sort of accurate, except in truth they had more control over it and picked a spot that was only about 80 meters instead of falling uncontrollably to 280 meters like the movie shows. That's about 262 feet instead of 918 feet. Big difference. At one point in the movie we see U-96 start taking on a lot of water. That did happen, albeit not really how the movie shows. But with the water creeping up to the torpedo tubes, U-96 was forced to surface again so the water wouldn't get to their electric motor. That would knock out their power and essentially spell doom for the ship. At 11.48pm, she surfaced, kicked on her diesel motors, and started hightailing it out of there. But the plane came back. No doubt her pilot was on the lookout for the sub that she'd spotted twice already. At 11.55 p.m., the plane shot off a flare to illuminate the area so any nearby ships could launch an attack on U-96. Fortunately, though, there weren't any ships nearby that the crew of U-96 would see, at least. But they weren't waiting around to find out. At about midnight, she dove again. This time, it was a little more like what the movie showed. With all the water she'd taken on, diving this time was a bit too much. She started to sink. Down. Down. But again, not nearly as far down as the movie shows. At only about 180 feet, or about 55 meters, she hit the seabed yet again. This time U-96 and her crew went quiet, waiting to see if there actually was a ship overhead. Using a hydrophone, they could hear a ship approaching. She was circling overhead, likely finding the pool of oil that U-96 had left in her wake as she traveled on the surface and then dove beneath. There's a moment in the movie when we see the crew start bailing out the water by forming a line and passing the buckets one at a time. That actually happened. While she was underwater this time, the crew formed a line and manually carried water from the aft compartment where the torpedo tubes were up to the control room. See, the the pumps in the control room were still working so they could pump the water out from there. Finally, the ships above began to leave the area. At approximately 4.45 a.m., U-96 finally surfaced. But she didn't do what we saw in the movie. She didn't go to Las Betias, like the movie implies. Instead, on December 2nd, they radioed BDU to let them know that they'd sustained significant damage and would be returning to base. On December 6th, 1941, U-96's 7th patrol officially came to an end when she returned to the same place she left from, Saint-Nazaire, France. The total time of her patrol was about 41 days, traveling a total of about 7,071 miles. That's about 6,836 miles, or 11,000 kilometers, traveled on the surface of the ocean, and about 235 miles, or 378 kilometers, traveled while submerged. In the movie, almost immediately after arriving, an air raid cuts off the band's music on the dock and forces everyone to run for cover. Oh, and just before that, we hear an announcer who says, quote, the third submarine flotilla welcomes our returning soldiers, end quote. I couldn't really tell if they were saying that, like, the third submarine flotilla was stationed where U-96 was arriving and they were the ones that were welcoming U-96, or if they were welcoming U-96 as a part of the third submarine flotilla, I'd like to say the former, though, because if it was the latter, then the movie would be inaccurate. You see, U-96 was part of the 7th submarine flotilla, but that's neither here nor there. Back to the air raid in the movie. Once the raid is over, Werner emerges to survey the damage. Among the wreckage, we see Johann's body, Omen's body. Then Werner stumbles across Jürgen Prochnow's version of Captain Lehmann Willenbrock himself. The camera moves to the water and we see U 96 sink beneath the surface as she finally succumbs to the damage from the raid. Then we see the captain succumb to his wounds. That's, well, that's all made up. If you remember, the real Captain Heinrich Lehmann Willenbrock served as a consultant for the movie, so he didn't die in 1941. Johann didn't either, or at least the real person that Johann was based on, Hans Johansen, didn't. He lived until March 5th, 1961, when he passed away at the age of 48. Another person who didn't die like the movie shows was Hans Heinrich Haas, the real person that the character of Ullman was based on. He lived until January 21st, 2009, when he passed away at the age of 86. Finally, the boat itself didn't slip away in 1941 either. That was the seventh patrol for U-96 out of a total of 11 that she had during World War II. Her last ended on February 8, 1943. As a fun little fact, despite now being the most popular of her patrols because of Das Boot, the 7th patrol was actually one of the least effective for U-96. During those 41 days, she was responsible for sinking a single ship. Throughout all 11 patrols, she was at sea for a total of 425 days and sank a total of 27 ships damaged four more, and caused so much damage on another that it was declared a total loss. And even though I said it was all made up for the movie, probably the most accurate part of this uh, ending here was that U-96 did indeed end up sinking after an air raid. After her final patrol in 1943, U-96 was reassigned to be a training boat as newer U-boats were being put into service. She was officially decommissioned on February 15th, 1945, then, only about a month later, on March 30th, 1945, the U.S. Air Force bombed where she was at in Wilhelmshaven, sending her to the depths for good. As for Captain Limon Willenbrook, after the war ended, he went to work repairing ships until, in 1948, he moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina, and found work as the captain of merchant ships. He'd finally returned to Germany as he continued to work commanding merchant ships until, as we already learned, he helped director Wolfgang Petersen on the movie Das Boot. Four years after the movie was released, on April 18, 1986, Heinrich Lehmann willenbrock passed away at his home in Bremen, Germany, at the age of 74. He was outlived by the man who joined him on U-96's 7th patrol during World War II, We already learned a bit about Lothar Gunter Buchheim's career after the war in the introduction to this episode. For decades after the war, he took advantage of both his love of art and the sudden influx of cheap art available after the fall of the Nazi regime as he focused on art as an artist, collector, and publisher, and more. Then he rose to international fame with his book that the movie was based on. The book was released in 1973. But he also wrote numerous other books about his war experiences after that. All the while, he insisted that his book was supposed to be an anti-war book, something that he didn't feel the movie portrayed very well. In fact, Buchheim wrote a rather scathing review of the movie that I'm going to include as a bonus episode for producers of the show. For some time, he went back to focusing on art. Then, in 2001, he opened a museum to house his $300 million collection of art. At least, that's what some have estimated it to be worth. Six years later, on February 6th, 2007, he celebrated his 89th birthday at his home in Starnberg, Bavaria. Just 16 days later, Lothar Gunther Buchheim passed away. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about the true story of the U96, I'd really recommend you start with two books. The first is the book that the movie is based on, Das Boot by Lothar Gunther Buckheim. Except of course that's a novel. Plenty more details are in there, but as we've learned, not necessarily all of them are accurate to history. Again, it is a novel. So the other book that I would recommend is much more accurate to the true story. It's called German U Boat Ace, Heinrich Lehmann Willenbrock, The Patrols of U 96 in World War II by Luc Broya. Luke had access to the ship's logs and personal photo books of Captain Lehmann Willenbrock. So not only does that book include a great account of U 96's various patrols, not just the 7th, but all of their patrols, there's a ton of great photos in there. For example, there's one. From U 96, that was taken of the Rock of Gibraltar at night. So you can see, well, really all you can see is the moonlight on the water, and there's a lot of really bright searchlights. Or there's another great photo of Captain Lehman Willenbrook on U 96, along with Lothar Gunther Buchheim. Not to mention tons of other photos from the 7th Patrol and others. I would really recommend that book. And as always, I'll add links to where you can pick up those books and many more resources for you to start learning more about U96 over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode, here's another five-star review. And coincidentally, or maybe not, this is a review from Frank Linker over on Apple Podcasts and it says, Your friend from Way Off Topic Radio it's the committed and countless hours of research of historical accuracy that are just the tip of the iceberg on why your show is in my top 3 podcasts. I can't ever wait to listen to. Keep up the great work, Dan. By the way, I finally found one tiny verbal crutch you have, which also being a podcaster, I found we all have one or like me, hundreds <laughs> don't ever change, Dan. Anyways, love the show and I'm Still hoping for your boat's review featuring my late grandfather and my all-time favorite movie, Das Boot, the German-spoke-dubbed-English version, of course. Thanks so much, Frank. I really hope you've learned some more about the real story of U96. I I hope I did you and your grandfather proud with this episode, (laughs) and I think you're right about that crutch. You say don't change, but now I can't help but try to change that. So I think if you listen through this episode again… you shouldn't hear the word nearly as much, or at all. In fact, reading your review was the very first time I said that word (laughs) this whole episode. No guarantees for not saying in the future though. Now if you're listening to this and wondering who Frank is, uh, Frank Linker was the official producer of this podcast that supported the show and we heard from in the beginning, in the introduction, and he picked Das Boot as the movie to cover. So this entire episode is thanks to Frank. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did creating it and maybe learned something new along the way. Thanks again, Frank. Oh, speaking of patron of the show, I also want to send out a special thanks to Stephanie Weaver who's not only a patron of the show but went above and beyond and really helped me with the pronunciations for this episode. I'm sure it was painfully obvious that I don't speak German, but Stephanie does and she sent me some awesome recordings with the correct pronunciations of each of the names, locations, and other German words in this episode. I did my best to replicate her pronunciations, but if there's any mistakes, rest assured they lie with my attempts of replicating those great pronunciations that she provided. Thank you so much, Stephanie. That really, really helped. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. U-96 sank in 1941 like the movie shows. Number two. Captain Heinrich Lehmann willenbrock did not die in 1941 like the movie shows. Number 3. U-96 did not depart for her 7th patrol from La Rochelle, France like the movie shows. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is… Number 1. As we learned, U-96 would continue to have a total of 11 patrols before being decommissioned and then sunk on March 30, 1945. Since World War II ended on May 8th, 1945, technically, U-96 didn't survive the war. But almost. Got something you want to add to the discussion? Share it with the community in the Base on a True Story Facebook group. Or if you prefer, you can find me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan DanLeFeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And don't forget, you can see some photos of the real faces and places behind each episode on Instagram where it's at Base on a True Story Podcast. And if social media isn't your thing, remember you can always say hi through email at dan at com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.